Welcome everyone to The Demand Side. I'm your host, Edward Brown. On today's episode, we're talking about the virtues and shortcomings of capitalism and whether a new form of capitalism is needed for the 21st century. Our guest today is Dr. Rebecca Henderson. Dr. Henderson is a professor of economics at Harvard University, a research fellow at the National Bureau of Economic Research, and a fellow of both the British Academy and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. She is an expert on innovation and organizational change, and her research explores the degree to which the private sector can play a role in building a more sustainable economy, focusing particularly on the relationships between organizational purpose, innovation, and productivity in high-performance organizations. For many years, she taught a course at Harvard titled Reimagining Capitalism, Business and the Big Problems, which was the basis for her recent book, Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire which we will discuss a little bit today. Dr. Henderson, welcome to the show. Ed, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here and please call me Rebecca. <laughs> okay, um, so Re Rebecca, we have quite a lot to cover today, uh, but before we get into beating up on capitalism too much, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the benefits markets provide society. Uh, as you may be aware from reading some of my pieces on the demand side, I do consider myself to be a liberal, but I, I actually worked at a conservative think tank here in D.C. after uh, a short stint in, in President Obama's Council of Economic Advisors. And, and one of the things that, that stood out to me uh, during my time there was how many conservative economists uh, trumpet uh, or, or at least default to the idea that capitalism has lifted 2 billion people out of poverty over the last 60 years. And, and, I, and I really try not to challenge that notion because uh, markets, when, when properly organized, uh, can help many people. But too often, I feel that's where the argument ends. Essentially, capitalism eliminated poverty, uh, period. And I think that can be quite deleterious uh, when trying to address some of the problems capitalism creates. So before we get into the weeds and discuss some of these issues, can you talk a little bit about what capitalism has gotten right uh, or perhaps the good parts uh, of the market-based system? Sure. It's surprising in talking about my book, and it has this title, Reimagining Capitalism, I've been surprised by the number of people I've met and talked to who say, why should we reimagine capitalism? Why don't we just throw it out the window? And so I've actually found myself thinking a fair amount about why I think that's a really seriously bad idea. And uh, so I say in my book, and I believe it, I, I'm a huge fan of free markets as they're supposed to work. So I think the genuinely free and fair market is one of the great inventions of the human race. I think unleashing the power of competition to drive innovation was a brilliant idea. And I think as we look at how much innovation we've seen in the last hundred years, some of it, 
And I think an important part of it is a reflection of governments investing in fundamental research and the advance of knowledge. And so I don't think it's just the free market, but the free market in partnership with the kind of scientific advances we've seen have given us, I mean, not only 2 billion people out of poverty, which I'm a big fan of, but also cell phones and penicillin and the fact that we're not all eating turnips and on the edge of starvation most of the time which is roughly what the world was like 200 years ago. So when people say, well, capitalism, you know, gave us 2 billion out of poverty, let's not even argue about it. For me, there are two big questions. One is, what form of capitalism? Do we have really a genuinely free and fair market? And the second is, wait, 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 wait. It wasn't just the free market. <laughs> there were a bunch of other things going on over the last 200 years, like, hey, the invention of democracy and major scientific advances. And so, you know, there, there's been some, some allies along the way in, in getting 2 billion people out of poverty. Sure. But bottom line, I think the free market is the only way we're going to solve the problems that we face. And that capitalism at its best is an unparalleled source of freedom and prosperity. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, I'm not I'm not attacking the market by any means. You know, the market remains unrivaled as a, a wealth creation machine. But I do think that it's a little bit of a stretch to say that, you know, by by solely maximizing shareholder value, that public welfare is maximized. I, I think I think Adam Smith was a little off when he said, you know, quote, by pursuing his own interest, man promotes that of society. Um, but I also think that, that, that Karl Marx was off when he said, from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. Um, you know, a middle ground exists, and your book, Reimagining Capitalism, um, does a good job of finding it, given the challenges we currently face. And what's so fascinating about your book, and I encourage all of our, our listeners to go out and get a copy, um, but what's so great about your book is you actually enlist the private sector to help solve many of the issues you outline. Um, can you talk a little bit about why you think the private sector is so vital to the process of building a new capitalism? The private sector is arguably the most powerful institution on the planet. It has access to unparalleled resources and capabilities. When I said before, I didn't think we would solve the problems we face without capitalism, I really meant it. Um, if you think about problems like AI and robotics, we need to be able to create millions of jobs in relatively short order. If we're going to solve the problem of climate change, we need to transform, let me just begin the list, transportation, energy, infrastructure, agriculture, how cities are built. I mean, and I think we need private enterprise to be able to lead that charge. So that's the first reason I think private enterprise is absolutely essential. The second, and we'll talk more about this, is I think they have an important role to play in rebuilding the complementary institutions to the market that we need if we're going to reimagine capitalism. And so business has actually a very important political role to play. And last but not least, I mean, the reason I focus on business so much is because there's an economic case for them to address these issues. Right. 
You know, I have 25 years cumulative experience on major corporate boards. I understand that firms need to, you know, make profits if they are to survive. And I think the number one reason that we can look to business and ought to look to business is because if we don't address some of the major problems we, we face, we're looking at an economy in decline. We're looking at, I think, very negative political dynamics and a move towards crony capitalism, uh, not to mention massive floods, massive fires, and very, very angry populations. So, so for me, reimagining capitalism is, is all about, you know, saving capitalism from itself in some ways. I mean, let's, let's rebuild this system so that it works for everyone, but most importantly, the capitalists themselves. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it, you know, when I hear you talk about this, it's it's it reminds me of Keynes, you know, wanting to save capitalism from itself. And um, but let's take a let's take a deeper dive here. Um, one of the things that you mentioned in the book that stood out to me was how the 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 quarterly earnings process has created a mindset of short termism that has hindered growth. Um, you know, stifled innovation and, and, and really delayed uh, the investments in more environmentally friendly ventures. Um, you, you make the case that because firms have to report their earnings so frequently that executives often shy away from, you know, long-term, more capital-intensive projects, uh, you know, projects that, like you said, can not only bring um, large financial returns, but, you know, also be good for the environment. Uh, because if they did that, they would face the, the wrath of shareholders, a fall in the stock price, and, and, and possibly their, their termination from their, their board of directors. If, if this is the case, and, and I very much think it is, aren't governments going to have to be the ones that incentivize firms to become more environmentally and socially conscious? Or are we already at a point where cost-effective options are available. Wow. Let me unpack this just a little bit. It's a lot. It's a lot. Um, when I talk about firms being overly short-term focused, that can sometimes sound as if we think firms are irrational or investors are irrational, that everyone is just kind of focused on quarterly earnings and that's sort of stupid. And as an economist, I'm very nervous about stupidity as an explanation, right? Um, my, my belief is the problem is, historically, it's been hard to communicate to investors the idea that some of these long-term investments might actually be really good for the bottom line. And one classic example of this is uh, changing the employment system inside the firm. So I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that adopting what's sometimes been called a high road employment system that is treating people with dignity and respect, uh, paying them a little bit above the average, but certainly a living wage, giving them the tools they need to do the job and pushing power down in the organization is in many circumstances a way to create a much more innovative and productive organization. 
and that we have lots of evidence to suggest not that these firms are automatically higher returns because it's expensive to run this kind of system, but certainly that firms like this can survive in a competitive environment and often they thrive. And one of the upsides of this kind of employment system is like, whoa, it's much better to work at a firm like this. So very significant social welfare creation. I mean, people much prefer it by and large, depends on the person, but most people much prefer this kind of employment system and it raises wages and it um, increases innovation in the economy and, and all kinds of good benefits. So why is it so hard to do? Well, one of the problems is it takes serious time and energy and investment to build such a high road employment system. So an example of this is Walmart, which historically has been running pretty much a low road employment model, you know, pay people as little as possible, break the unions, give them, you know, not very good schedules. And for a variety of reasons, the CEO and the senior team decided like, whoa, this is probably a mistake. So, I mean, customer service was degenerating, huge amount of public pressure, people really, a lot of anger against the firm. So trying to move to a high road employment system, very clear what the business case is, but it's going to take time. So he announces he's going to raise wages and that it's going to be a $3 billion charge, you know, unexpected charge to, to returns. And like the stock market goes crazy. I would imagine. I mean, you remember? <laughs> I mean, they lost like something like 20% of the firm's value. I mean, that's a lot of money if you're Walmart. And I speculate, no one knows, that if the chair of the board hadn't been a Walmart and very much aligned with this policy, you know, maybe the CEO would have lost his job. Maybe, maybe. We don't know. But, you know, certainly very, very difficult time. Now, it turns out that he was entirely right that productivity and customer service has absolutely gone up, that the investment is definitely playing for itself. But part of the problem is that he didn't have the metrics or the track record that he could explain to the market why this was a good idea. It's not that markets are inherently short term. I mean, think about a firm like Amazon. How many years did they lose money? Think about, you know, the big pharmaceutical companies, which plow billions of dollars into long term research, which isn't going to yield returns for if we're lucky, like 10 years. So if you can explain to investors what's going on, then they will let you make the long term investments. That's my belief. So a huge part of the solution to the mess we're in is better measures of these kinds of non-financial important investments that are gonna pay off in the long term. And yes, I do think there is a business case here for addressing inequality, for uh, attempting to solve climate change, for reducing waste. Um, I think there are billion dollar business cases. And we can talk about why firms aren't, well, instantly doing them, but many firms are moving in that direction. But you raised another really important issue. You said, well, if firms are going to be so short-term focused, maybe government needs to step in. And let's be really clear. There are many aspects of the problems we face. Let's just take climate change as an example. That are essentially public goods problems. Right. So all of us would be much, much better off, I would argue, if we were to sensibly address the risk of climate change. Uh, Anyone living in California is going to say amen to that right now, right? And maybe in Pensacola and Florida too. So um, definitely a collective case for not destabilizing the planet and causing floods and fires and flooding all the great coastal cities. But individually, 
you know, Ed, I'd be delighted if you would pay to fix that problem, please. <laughs> you know, right. <laughs> like why should I pay if not everybody's paying? And right. so there's a collective action problem here that is massive. And there's also a long-term problem because yes, most firms, um, I think the data on this is pretty good. Most firms can, for example, reduce their CO2 emissions and, and or their energy use, if we think about it that way, by 30, 40%, and it's completely MPV positive. Right. But past a certain threshold, it's hard. Right. You know, getting that last bit of carbon out here at Harvard, we have cut emissions from the campus by 40%, NPV positive the whole way. We're committed to zero by 2050, but now we're looking at the marginal projects that are kind of expensive. And so it would be super helpful if government stepped up, both both to solve the collective action problem and to solve the long-term problem. And really, I think that's what governments do. You know, business is fundamentally about me right now, and there's huge energy and excitement in that. But any decent society is also focusing on later and us. And so absolutely, I think government has a really important role to play in solving these problems. Yeah. So the, correct me if I'm wrong here. So you're, you're basically saying that the, the, the private sector isn't necessarily better than the federal government at, at addressing some of these issues. You just think that given the, the amount of change that is required and the fact that it, you know, many cases it's, you know, it, it, it's cost effective. Um, that the business community has to be involved and sort of take a take a step. So I'm thinking of this as a partnership, right? So, you know, if I'm running a major organization, I can cut my carbon emissions, as I said, almost in half and make a and make good money as I do that. So I should definitely do that. That has all kinds of positive effects. It begins to head off climate change. It cleans up the environment because let's not forget that causing burning fossil fuels causes enormous health damage. So the business business um, should definitely step up. But how do I do that next 50%? For that, I need sensible regulation from government. Uh, let me give you an example of this kind of positive uh, public-private partnership kind of inaction. Um, it turns out, don't laugh, that cow belches are a huge source of greenhouse gases. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, you know that, right? When cows belch, they put all this gas up and it's an, they, they belch methane and it's incredibly powerful greenhouse gas and, whoa, we should stop. And it turns out that a number of firms have solutions to this problem. So uh, the Dutch company DSM, for example, has an additive you put in the cow's feed and it very significantly reduces the belching. Wow. And it's pretty cheap. Right. So, you know, fantastic private enterprise at work. Right. Big problem. The farmer looks at DSM and says, well, yes, the world would be better off, but you're asking me to pay for it. Right. And I can't raise the price of milk. So here's an opportunity where this public-private interaction is so critical. If government were to say, okay, everybody, either you must use the additive or... Every time you emit methane from your operations, you need to pay a little tax. The farmer would go, whoa, okay, I'm on that. I'm on that. 
And the good thing about that is not only would you fix the problem, but every farmer would have to move. So no single farmer is disadvantaged. You add a few, it's, it's cents, it's a tiny amount of money to the price of milk, tiny amount of money for the price of milk, and you significantly reduce greenhouse gas emissions, huge benefit to the world. Right. And so that's what I mean when I say you need both the private sector and the government sector. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and I think that in the past, in past decades, we've been able to accomplish that. Um, and, and I think that while most people recognize that in the modern era, the, the market can't exist without the state and the state can't exist without the market, but it seems that the, the electorate has allowed the, the balance of power to shift so much in favor of big business. Um, at the expense of you know the little guy that many of these these things that you're talking about seem to be out of reach um <laughs> what is what is your take so you're exactly right that among most academics and many countries of the world the idea that you need both a strong democratic government and a strong free market is not wildly controversial Indeed, the development economists, when they're working with countries who are trying to build strong, prosperous, thriving societies, that's what they say. They say you need strong institutions and a strong free market. So what's the controversy? So I'm going to get a tiny bit political here. Okay. Okay. So I think, I think two, two things are going on. So remember that the whole move to sort of the glorification of the free market and all the excitement about the free market comes after World War II. And, and what's happening after World War II? Well, government is super strong. The government just won the war, has just passed major social legislation. Um, and in the early 60s, we see the passage of Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and massive investment in things like the VI bill and the, uh, the freeway system. So government is like where it's at. And a group then of... Keynesianism <laughs> collapses. <laughs> right. And then stuff goes really badly, right? So suddenly we have, you know, massive inflation and things aren't working. And the economists say, whoa, we got out of balance. Too much government. We need more free market. And we can argue about, you know, how much free market, but I think definitely a rebalancing absolutely on the wavelength. But here's the issue. So we start to rebalance more stress on the free market get rid of some regulation, well, this is going pretty well, we see enormous growth, let's push even faster and even harder. And then I think two things happen. One is, one of the ways our current system is, I think, broken, is if you push too much on the free market, you get lots and lots and lots of inequality. I mean, inequality is a feature, not a bug to someone who likes free markets. So, you know, a little bit of inequality, fabulous, drives incentives. You know, I want Bill Gates to be rich. Wow. I mean, what amazing inventions. I want people who build great businesses to do well. Do I want the 50 richest people in the world to have more wealth than the combined bottom half of humanity? I'm not so sure about that. Do I want a world in which in the last 20 years, the vast majority of the productivity gains have gone to the top 1%? Not so sure about that. Maybe I'll get a lot of angry people who think their kids have no future and a you know, serious move towards populism right across the world. 
So I, I think, you know, it was working incredibly well for the people who had the money, but not so well for everyone else. But the people who had the money were like, well, this is great. So they started pumping their money into the political system to reinforce free markets are great and things are amazing. And that movement met another movement, particularly in the States, which was a long-standing fear of people who didn't look like me. And so we have a white identity movement that has deep roots in America's history um, that is all about, like, I don't like those other people. And, you know, I, I learned recently that Barry Goldwater's convention in 1964, Goldwater, who was a decent and honorable man, is up on the stage and he's talking about we need less government spending. And the convention is you know, 50 or 100 beautiful white women dressed in white clothes, carrying white lilies. And like in the background, there's, you know, a lot of incendiary racist rhetoric. And so a very real concern with the free market and individual freedom, which has a long and honorable tradition in American politics, formed an alliance with the white identity movement. And that, they were really big on drowning the federal government in the bathtub because right. what was the federal government doing? It was passing things like the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. I don't like that. And so when you say, why did the electorate let this happen? It's kind of complicated. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. So, um, and, you know, we could unpack it, but... but um, Essentially, hatred of government has, has got caught up with identity politics. Yeah. And the immense tribalism that's now characterizing American politics. And it's not just America, right? You see it in the UK, you see it in Hungary, you see it in Poland. Um, and, you know, government has become synonymous with, oh, immigration, others, and, and we, don't, we don't want that. Yeah. Um, so tough, tough political problem. So, so how does this fit into your narrative of the extractive state. Um, you know, do, do you think that the U.S. is turning into an extractive state or perhaps already is one, you know, where the, the, the rich who have, who have, you know, done things to gain this power is, is, is primarily their strategy is to buy power and influence and, and protect their, monopolistic market share rather than developing new and innovative products. Um, you know, and, and if that's the case, uh, which, you know, I sort of think it is, uh, is the solution to then get money out of politics or is it more complicated than that? Because I feel like, you know, we've, we've let the, the pendulum shift a little bit. And if, if we could just, you know, get money out of politics, it, it would shift back. What, what, are, what are your thoughts on that? So I'm a huge fan of getting money out of politics, of revoking or working around Citizens United. Um, I'm also a huge fan of really moving against voter suppression and gerrymandering. But money in politics, I mean, it's, it's such enormous amounts. Well, I teach um, at the Harvard Business School and you know we, we teach cases on lobbying. And the ex-US students say, 
this is legal in the United States. <laughs> um, and it's not, just, it's not just money at the federal level. As the Center for Political Accountability has been publishing a sequence of great reports on this, corporate money is going to state and local levels where relatively small amounts of money will buy you the attorney general or, you know, buy <laughs> and, and the attorney general who's going to decide whether to enforce the law. So... Are we an extractive state right now? I, I don't think so. Do we have very strong extractive tendencies and are there portions of the economy moving in that direction? Absolutely. It really worries me. You know, I'm an immigrant. I came to the States because I love the openness and the competition. And I taught right. technology at MIT for 20 years. I mean, like I'm so on the wavelength. Right. But it really worries me when essentially we put antitrust policy on pause. Now, antitrust policy is tricky mm -hmm. and complicated and we need a real conversation about it. But no conversation at all is not an answer. Right. And we see enormous amounts of power concentrating in the technology platforms for a long time in the fossil fuel industry. We see a, a dramatic fall in the number of entrepreneurial startups in this country that, that started some time ago and has been continuing. And I really worry that um, firms are buying, you know, buying the politicians they want. And even if it's not that egregious, if 70% of the American population believes, you know, which the surveys suggest, that the system is rigged in favor of those with money, money and power, that itself is horribly corrosive. Right. You know, we no longer have people feeling that they have a stake in the system. Social mobility rates are way down. I mean, most people, a majority of people cannot legitimately expect, statistically, they can't expect that their kids will do better than they they. They, they will. So I'm super worried. I mean, you know, what I say is you can't do without government. Your choice is what kind of government. And, you know, if you really try and get rid of the government, you're in risk of, of getting a crony state of, of extraction. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about, since we're talking about the extract, extractive state, let's, let's, I'd love to get your thoughts on how that has uh, affected inequality. Um, because, you know, when I hear arguments about inequality, particularly that, you know, here in the US, you know, it, it wasn't always this way. Every every scholar says, you know, it, it wasn't always the way it is today. Um, specifically, citing that, you know, there is a there's a strong inverse relationship between union participation and inequality. Um, and, you know, if we could have more unions, then, you know, we would fix this. Are unions really the answer to reducing inequality? I, I just, I think that unions are, are very inefficient. Uh, you know, certainly, you know, a, a, a threaten the, the production process and, and perhaps limit output, but they do a great, they do seem to do a great job of leveraging their power to ensure pay increases at the bottom uh, of the income spectrum. And, you know, if, if, if unions are the answer or, or part of a, a much broader solution, how do we get from where we are now, which is, you know, little to no union participation, to unionizing millions of workers? Those are two questions. <laughs> Let me answer, try and answer them both. The first, you're quite right, of course. 
one of the strongest correlates of reduced inequality is union presence. It's not the only correlate. It's clearly not the only solution. Um, increased investments in education and healthcare and some form of redistributive taxation um, is clearly also important and enabling people to participate. Uh, but unions are probably hugely important, but we say this word union. It's like the word firm. Yeah. I mean, there are creepy, extractive, badly run, low run, low road firms, and there are purpose driven, high road, totally engaged in the prosperity of the society firms. You know, and uh, some people think all firms are evil, and some people think they're all great, and it's a spectrum. Union is absolutely the same. I mean, let's think about. Uh, you know, I worked at General Motors. I had uh, did a bunch of consulting at General Motors in the early nineties. And the UAW was um, a nightmare, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It was just all about rent extraction. And uh, may I say the management was also a nightmare? I mean, it was horrible. It was a very, very difficult experience, kind of scarring experience. But you go visit a union in some German firms or some Japanese firms, and the union is all about working with management to build a stronger firm and to invest in next generation skills and to make sure that everybody's included in the decision-making. And I think we have a bunch of evidence that you can have a unionized firm and they can be right at the leading edge. I mean, Germany's share of manufacturing exports is bizarre. It's so large, right? Germany has a larger share of world manufacturing exports than the U S with an economy. That's what a quarter the size. Yeah. I, I wouldn't be, don't want to, Put any money on that number but it's a significantly smaller economy it's, yeah and and how did they do that they did that by relentless investment in training and education and their workforce so you know they of course it always has to be renewed and it's always tricky but they're much less worried about ai than many other parts of the world because they're like it'll be a tool it'll be an amazing thing to make our workers more productive how do they do that they have worker representations on the board they have industry wide bargaining so that no firm is disadvantaged uh, industry wide ba uh, wage bargaining but most importantly they have a culture where the union is in partnership with management so i do think unions might be the answer but again maybe we're going to have to have another word for them here in the us we don't mean these old unions we mean this new kind of union Right. And now you're saying, okay, maybe we need the new kind of union. How do we go from zero to, you know, 80 miles an hour in like five years, 10 years? Yeah. Super hard. Not as hard as you think because it was done right after World War II. Um, how it happened after World War II is just fascinating. There was a provision in some of the wartime legislation saying that the industry groups that got together should have worker representation in those meetings. So they did. And so the workers were like, whoa, okay. You know, now we're sitting at the table and some very visionary union leadership sort of used the occasion to start to unionize. And so uh, we have really quite strong anti-union legislation in this country. It's super hard to form unions. And we have a business elite that is totally convinced that unions are a bad idea. And, but, but both of those could be fixed. I mean, we could make union legislation more friendly to unions. We could think hard about what that meant in the terms of we want the, like the good, modern, constructive kind of union. Right. And we could work on persuading business leaders that this would make a major difference in inequality and I think in worker 
dignity and power and respect, and those would be good things. So, you know, I I think in some ways it's much easier than putting a man in the moon. I mean, (laughs) yeah. We, we, we sort of know what it would look like and we have horrible problems of inequality and everybody's screamingly angry and here's a good solution. I mean, like, we could do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so before we, before we get into some concrete uh, solutions, I, I, I want to hear your take on automation because this is something that like, really, really sort of concerns me um, you know, I, I'm, I'm afraid that we're just standing idly by while drastic change is taking place. And, and I feel like if we continue to automate and automate at the rate we are and not educate commensurately, then, you know, we're going to have to start giving people money to spend because, you know, they're, got, they're not going to be any jobs for those at the bottom. And, you know, that means no income for their families and, you know, lower consumption and reduced yeah. growth. How does, how does automation fit into your idea of a reimagined capitalism? Because, you know, I, I, are you as worried as I am? <laughs> Cause it's not, it's not just, you know, threatening, you know, lower, lower class jobs. It's, it's, it could oh. threaten middle-class jobs as well. For sure. Lawyers. Yeah. Insurance executives. There are all kind of routine middle-class service jobs that are ab- accountants yep. and absolutely threatened by AI. No, um, I was in a conference where one of the strategy guys from one of the major accounting firms, uh, he claimed two things. One, they are the largest hirer of uh, white-collar people in the world, in largest single hirer. And sec- I don't know if it's true, but he claimed. And secondly, they're planning to reduce their hiring by 25% over the next three to four years. Oh, wow. Yeah, so there's reason to be worried. And I mean, we've all seen the statistics about the number of truck drivers. And so here's why I'm not quite as worried as you are. I'm worried, but not quite as incandescent. Give me, give me some good news. <laughs> okay. So first, let's not lose sight of the fact that historically... Every major innovation like this that has increased labor productivity has greatly increased living standards. So, you know, let's go back to the Luddites smashing looms in Northern England because they didn't want a mechanical loom to do what their hand loom could do. And it turns out that once you have a mechanical loom, you know, you can employ many more people. There's much more demand. So that historically, labor augmenting capital investment has been a big win for the society as a whole. So here's the big asterisk that's coming. (laughs) First asterisk, what about the transition problem? Those people who were smashing looms, those new looms didn't do much for them. So I think we really have to think about the transition problem. I mean, in retrospect, it's quite clear that those of us who care about climate should have spent a lot more time talking about making sure that coal miners had decent jobs and could take care of their families and less time just talking about, oh, we have to shut down coal. I mean, we really have to think about the transition problem. So how are we going to deal with the truck drivers who are going to lose their jobs in a way that that gives them, you know, dignity and respect and the ability to take care of their families and themselves? That's the first problem. Here's the second problem. I said society will be richer and better off. But if most of those, most of the increased productivity and most of those benefits goes to the people who own capital, 
and everyone else is just, you know, fighting it out, you know, desperately trying to get those last jobs, this is not going to be a good time. Yeah, I, I'm concerned <laughs> that, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned that the, the, the only winners are going to be, like you said, those that own capital and those that can code. And that's right. it. And, and, you know, I think that, you know, the, the transition isn't going to be quick. Um, you know, and there are going to be some people that are, are permanently displaced unless we find a way to educate and find so, places that we can put those people to train themselves to do the new economy jobs. I, I'm going to suggest there are two solutions in plain sight. One is, as you say, the education and the retraining. Let's look at Denmark for a moment. I think they invest something like 3% of GDP in retraining education. Oh, wow, that's great. It's a huge number. I may have it wrong, but it's very, very large. And so, in fact, job mobility in Denmark is greater than it is in the US. Like, what's with that? Well, that's because people aren't afraid to lose their jobs and they can go into these programs. The programs are jointly designed between business and government, and they're really serious. Yeah. So we're really going to retrain. So that's, that's absolutely one. But the second one is tiny bit radical, tiny bit political. Give it to me. Why don't we like give pe more people more capital? Why don't we, you know, find ways, again, the transition will be, would be, you know, would take time to transition, but this is not out of the question. Shouldn't every employee have a stake in their firm? Isn't real capitalism about everybody being a capitalist? Shouldn't we really think about distributing capital a bit? Now, you notice I'm not going to UBI. I do think it's important to give cash to people at the very bottom. I think the idea that there are people sleeping on the streets and we're worried about giving them cash because we think it will stop their work incentive. All the studies suggest that that's not true. That, you know, when you're sleeping on the street, you're like, you like have nowhere to shower. Yeah. You know, people who are totally desperate are not best positioned to think about like, what, what should my career prospects be? Right. And I mean, I'm sure you know this number, Ed, but labor participation rates are much higher, significantly higher in places like Sweden and Denmark, which have a strong social safety net because people feel more comfortable moving and they're not worried about childcare. And so absolutely, you know, we, we need, I think, a strong safety net at the bottom. But, you know, paying everybody to stay home like, what kind of life is that for a human being? I, I believe strongly we need to invest in new jobs and new companies and new ways of using this technology. Um, and, uh, and that we could build. God, do I sound hopelessly utopian optimist? No, it's, I know. I, I think... engineer in me. I mean, we can do this. We have the technologies. We know what the policies look like. Let's just do it. No, I think, I think we know what the problem is now and we know where we need to go. I just think, like you said, it's that transition of how we get there um, is, is, is the biggest, is the biggest problem. Um, but, you know, I, listen, I, I, I like the optimism. I really, I really do. Um, you know, I'm so concerned about the transition part that I have become in favor of the UBI just so that they can have that income to, live on not not well but live on while they you know train themselves because i mean it'd be great if we could pay people to you know to train like they do in, in other countries and, and we'll get we'll get that to that in a minute but it's just you know not we're not there yet um so but let's talk about some solutions we've 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 highlighted many of the problems 
Um, what are some of the things that we can do realistically right now to make a, a better and fairer capitalistic system? Um, I, I really enjoyed how in your book you highlighted Germany as a country that actively takes measures to promote more equal outcomes. Um, do developed states really need to be more like Germany? And if so, is their model something that can be applied to economies like the U.S. and, and others? I think it's very important that the U.S. find its own path. One friend said to me, your book really shouldn't be called Reimagining Capitalism. It should be called, could we go back to the capitalism of the 50s and 60s only without the racism and the misogyny, please? Yeah. Um, so it's not like we need to look to foreign models. We had a very strong inclusive society in the 50s and 60s. And of course, the asterisks without the racism and the misogyny is super important. So I don't really want to go back to the 50s. But that sense that government has a role to play and business has a role to play, um, I mean, until quite late in the 60s, General Motors published a report talking about what good they did for the community and the stakeholders. And it wasn't just profit, profit, profit all the time. So I think we can find an American model. I think an important aspect of it is, is fixing our democracy. I mean, to come back to our earlier conversation, I really think we need to get some of the money out of politics, all of the money if we can. I think we really need to make sure that every vote counts and that uh, we really are not, I mean, I think voter suppression should be just as unacceptable as LGBTQ discrimination. You know, when, uh, when in North Carolina, they passed an ordinance saying, you know, it's not okay, you know, bas basically we're stripping protections from, um, from, from uh, LGBTQ people. Business people said that that's completely unacceptable. Our employees will not accept it. That's not what a modern organization looks like. In my dreams, we'll move to a world where business will say, no, no, we want a real democracy that can really stand up to us. And so when you do voter suppression, we are going to come out and say that's completely unacceptable and we're going to give employees time off to vote. And, and this is not politics, this is civics. Right. Can we rebuild that sense that we have a real democracy and everyone's vote counts? So I think that's super important. I think there are particular policies. Yes, I would include, uh, I would increase taxes. Um, I am particularly distressed that very large fortunes can pass almost untouched to children. Yeah. You know, this idea that we're creating a hereditary aristocracy uh, I thought America was kind of founded on the basis of no aristocracy. Right. But I worry that we're going to have Waltons and Zuckerbergs. Um, and you everybody know, else. And everybody else, this enormous amount of money. And I mean, maybe they'll be well-meaning, but how can that much concentration of wealth be, be, yeah. be healthy for the democracy or the society? Plus, we need it. We need it to do the education and training and right. rebuilding the infrastructure uh, that we need to, to build, I think, a society that's going to be healthier and work better. So does that mean, so I, I'm as confident as you are, if we can just get people to the polls, many of these things will, will, will figure themselves out. And if we stop, you know, interfering with that, but I just, I feel like, you know, maybe we could vote on Saturday, but what if, what if we, financially incentivize people to vote 
or, you know, implement a tax if people don't vote. I mean, there are some countries where you have to vote. And, you know, I, I, I'm actually a big fan. I think voting should be mandatory. I think that if you live in the country and you're a citizen, you should have a duty to think about the policies that are being passed and to make your voice heard. I mean, we don't think twice about mandating, well, we thought a little bit about it, about mandating seatbelts. You know, there are some things that we insist people do for the common good. And I think the huge benefit of making voting mandatory is it would make it less polarized. Because at the moment, who votes? They're the people at the left and the right, the people who get really excited and the kind of rhetoric they use really drives away people who are more in the middle. If you knew everyone in the middle was going to vote, I think you'd have a much stronger incentive to think about policies that appeal to people in the middle. I mean, we know, I'm sure you know this, Ed, but it still blows me away. If you present most people with a list of policies that includes things like raising the minimum wage and some kind of carbon regulation. I mean, a kind of sensible middle of the road set of policies, in, increase in investment in infrastructure and so on. Most people say, oh, I love that kind of, I, I like that list. You put democratic across the top of that list yeah. and yeah. half the population says, oh, I don't want that. Right. 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 <laughs> I mean, like, what is that? Well, yeah. we know what I mean, that people, is. You know, I, I tell people this, I tell people this, the only president, to ever truly consider a universal basic income was Richard Nixon. Exactly. Yeah. The, and and you, not- you bring up U, UBI <laughs> to any Republican today, and they are just no no way, unless they're the, you know, the, the libertarians that want a UBI and do away with all social assistance. But but yeah, I mean it's 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 very much the case. You put that that marker up there and, and things and things can't happen, which you know, leads, leads to, you know, one, you know, one other question, you, you outline all these things that, that can be done. If we, if we remain in our current environment of, you know, low, uh, you know, voter participation, are there things that we can do technocratically to, to make these things happen? If we, if, you know, if, is there any way we can achieve the goals that you, you have outlined knowing that the voting situation is going to get no better. Um, I do think we could get surprisingly far. If you imagine a world in which most business leaders become convinced that addressing problems like climate change and like inequality and like racial inclusion are absolutely central to the long-term survival of of the economy and, and business as a whole, and even better, that in the short term, they can make money addressing some of these problems, particularly if they come together. We haven't talked about cooperation, but I think an important part of the answer here is if businesses jointly act in the way I talked about with the belching cows, if right. business can be persuaded to act together so no one's at a disadvantage, everyone can say, okay, let's invest in the schools. I mean, I'm Uh, in conversation with a group of business people in Orange County, California, which we don't think of as a bastion of tree-hugging liberals. And a huge number of the local CEOs have gotten together and said, we have to improve the local education system. That we can't hire the people we want, 
and that this is really putting the whole region at a major disadvantage and we can't easily move, so we have to raise the educational system. And that's got them deeply engaged with the universities and all kinds of reasons some people don't do well at education. So if you know, business sees it's a huge need, can see a business case and is willing in many cases to act together, I think we could make enormous progress. I don't think we get the whole way, but I think we could really begin to move in, in super important ways. I mean, I, I told you, I think we have a business case for reducing carbon emissions by 50%. I mean, that would be amazing. If we could do that over the next 15 years, I mean, it would get us very close to the target they're telling us we need, which is, you know, halfway down by 2030. And I think they could make an enormous difference against inequality. I mean it when I talk about these high road employment systems. I really think that the evidence is very strong. It's a better way to run, that people are more productive and more innovative. And again, if everybody starts doing it, it becomes easier to do for all kinds of reasons, cultural and institutional. So yeah, I think we can make a lot of progress. And let me close by reminding us, you, you need the reminding of this, but some of these problems are susceptible to innovation. You know, I would say that once a day I, got a, I get an email, I have a file called Cool Companies. Yeah. And I get an email from people who are saying, I'm growing a substitute for palm oil in vats. I'm going to make meat obsolete because I'm going to be growing meat right here in the lab. I have discovered a way to pull carbon out of the atmosphere that's much cheaper. So I don't want to forget that techn technical progress will get us a long way. Again, the stronger the demand signal we can give to that innovation, you know, I'm, I'm an economist. I want a price for carbon, please. Yeah. Yeah. But if we had, you know, had a serious carbon policy, I think we would see incredible innovation happening much faster than anyone expects. Yeah. Well, Dr. Henderson, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. I, I know our listeners and I have just learned so much from you. So thank you so much for taking the time out of your, your busy schedule to join us. I really appreciate the opportunity to be in conversation. You ask the best questions. Ed. Thank you very, very much. <laughs> Well, that's it for us here at the demand side. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Should We Rethink Capitalism with our very special guest, Dr. Rebecca Henderson. If you want to get more Rebecca Henderson, her new book, Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire, is available for purchase on the demand side's library page. And if you want to access all of Dr. Henderson's research, visit RebeccaHenderson.com. Don't forget to check out all the episodes of the demand side on the demand side's landing page, wherever you get your podcasts and make sure to visit the for access to opinion pieces, books, news, and videos. Thank you all for joining us today. And remember if you're forced to choose sides, always choose the demand side until next time. <laughs>